So we're looking at verses 12 and following today. It says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who dwell in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Well, uh, Americans have a reputation throughout the world of being terrible at geography. And I think partially, at least partially, that's true. Uh, I think it's true with just about every culture. We tend to be familiar, basically, with what we know, what, where we've been and what's close to us, and not so familiar with things apart from us. Um, nearly three-quarters of eighth graders tested below proficient in geography on the 2014 National Assessment of Educational Progress, which is also known as the nation's report card. And this wasn't just one year. Uh, I mean, this one particular year is 2014, but it's been kind of replicated over and over and over again through decades. Going back to 1994, Uh, Basically, Americans have been doing poorly uh, when it comes to geography. And really, it's kind of a shame in a sense because geography kind of makes us who we are. Uh, Our geography affects a lot about us. Uh, I never realized that until I left Buffalo when I was in seminary. And uh, the first time I left, it was apart from home, went to Louisville, Kentucky. And it was really a culture shock. I mean, it's the United States. It's not that far away. But it's a very different place than Buffalo. Some of the things I noticed that were different. Uh, in Buffalo, we love the Bills. We love football. Uh, many people watched the NFL. And I went there, and not only did people not like the Bills, I, I mean, they expected that, but they didn't like the NFL at all. Most people weren't interested in the NFL. If anything, they were interested in college football. And everybody kind of had their own team that they rooted for. There was nothing that kind of brought people together like the Bills and and Sabres and stuff in Buffalo brings us together. The other thing that stuck out was there was a good gospel-believing church on like every corner that you went to. I mean, it was hard to even pick out which church to go to. There was just so many good quality churches and you 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 had like seminary professors that went there and were just kind of lay leaders in these churches, um, you know, and everybody was just, I mean, really educated, knew God's word. It was just a really different environment. Then I went to Boston um, for uh, the, the end of seminary, Gordon Conwell, and that was completely different. 
Uh, there weren't churches on every corner. There were very, very few churches, much less churches than there are here. And, and the churches that did exist were extremely small. Um, and it was really hard to find a church for a different reason because there weren't that many there. Um, you know, there was this kind of, you know, every, every, everyone was pretty wealthy that lived around us. We lived in a, you know, the seminary was in a subdivision. And, you know, there's these ginormous million-dollar houses all around you know, and you go to the grocery store, and everything was like 20% more than it was here. Um, and it was just a different environment. And you think about that, and the geography affects that environment. Um, you know, Boston, place of, of, of business being on the sea, uh, a, base that, a place that had, you know, a lot of uh, connotations with the revolution. It was kind of a, a centerpiece of American civilization. You know, and it affects how people live even to this day. Even in North Tonawanda, you know, we're known as the lumber city because it used to be that lumber was the industry here. Um, North Tonawanda used to be one of the biggest ports on the Great Lakes uh, during the days of the height of the Erie Canal. Um, you think about, you know, the houses on Goundry Street, and the, the mansions, I mean, ginormous houses, and uh, they were built by lumber barons. And, you know, you think about that, and that affects how people live here today, and it's just kind of... Uh, trickles down throughout, you know, history to the, to the time we live today. Geography makes a big difference. Uh, even in, within Buffalo, I grew up in Sanborn, and then after I was married, uh, we had a house in town, the town of Tonawanda, uh, almost to Main Street, and then we lived here in, in uh, uh, the Parsonage, and now we live in Sanborn again. And, and living in those three different places, I mean, they're, they're not very far apart, we're maybe 10 miles apart, but each place that we lived in had a very different feel, different, different culture, uh, different types of people, different ways of doing things that's affected by uh, geography. Politics is often defined by geology, ge geography. Um, politics, you often have people who are uh, conservative that tend to live in rural areas, people that are more liberal tend to live in urban areas. Of course, that's not always the case, but that's kind of the tendency that tends to be. Uh, food is affected by geography. Um, you go down to New Orleans, you got a lot of seafood, you got a lot of Cajun food, and kind of the influence of, uh, of the Haitian culture on, on the cuisine. You know, you got to go down to Texas and you have a lot of barbecue. Uh, here in Buffalo, we like pizza, and we have really good pizza compared to other places in the United States. Uh, you go to Florida, there's citrus and seafood and stuff like that. Um, then you, you, know, you go to other countries, and you know maybe you have Chinese food or, or Indian food or Italian food. And oftentimes, kind of the main staples are kind of what uh, uh, ingredients were most available. You know, there's... You know, Chinese dishes tend to have a lot of rice because there was a lot of rice available. And so geography affects everything about who we are. It affects how we eat, how we live, how we behave. It affects a lot about us, but sometimes we don't know as much as we need to about geography. And I think the same thing is true when we approach the scriptures. We don't know that much about geography. Um, when it comes to geography, at least myself, as I approach scripture, uh, I've often been quite ignorant when it comes to the people and the places that are particularly that are being mentioned in scripture. And, and I think it's important in this passage that we're looking at today to be aware of the geography uh, of what is happening here. So first of all, it says that John was uh, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. 
John the Baptist. And so we don't know exactly where the wilderness of Judea was, but we do know where Judea was. And so it says in the text that after uh, John was arrested, Jesus decided that he was going to go from Judea to Galilee. Now, when I first read that, I don't, doesn't think, I don't think of anything of, of that. You know, he went from one place to another. But it's helpful here to look at the map and look at where Judea was and where Galilee was. It might be a little bit hard to see on the map, but if you look at the map, uh, the bottom, the orange part, is Judea. And uh, that's where somewhere in there was where John the Baptist was preaching and where Jesus went to see John the Baptist. And then you have Galilee that's up top in the pink or purple, purplish pink area. And kind of in between is this land of Samaria where you have these kind of half-Jewish people uh, where people, you know, they weren't really respected by Jews. And so you have kind of true Jews uh, in Judea, and true Jews in Galilee, but they're separated by Samaria. And so Jesus goes to Galilee. Now, there's a few things we need to know about Galilee. Uh, most people from Judea tended to look down on people from Galilee. They tended to look down on them because, you know, you see Galilee, and then Ga Galilee had some Jewish strongholds, some places where there were a lot of Jews, places like Capernaum, places like Nazareth, but there was other places like Chorazin and Sidon um, and some other places there, uh, Tiberias, where there was more of a Gentile presence. And so people from Judea tended to look down on Galileans because they were kind of amidst all the other Gentiles. And, you know, kind of the closest parallels, they probably didn't see them as, you know, they probably saw, still saw them as still being Jewish, but they probably thought of them, the closest parallel would be kind of like rednecks, so to speak. You know, they're in this backwater area. Uh, Judea is more urban. Galilee is more rural. And so people tended to look down on Galileans as being kind of uneducated, kind of out in the middle of nowhere amidst the Gentiles. And yet we see in this passage that Jesus goes to Galilee. He was, he was born in Bethlehem, he, he grew up in Nazareth, which, which was in Galilee, and then he's going to make his home base of ministry in Capernaum. And so this is significant because it's a place you wouldn't expect Jesus to go. If you were going to expect a great Messiah to come, and he, you'd expect him to come to the kind of the religious and cultural center of Israel, which was Jerusalem and Judea, but he doesn't do that, he comes to Galilee. And, and ironically, it's the Galileans who are accepting him. The Galileans who are going to believe his message. And so he's going to go to Capernaum and he's going to preach the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. And many Galileans are going to accept him. On the contrast, many of the Judeans and those who represent kind of the religious class are going to reject him. And eventually he's going to go to Jerusalem and in, in Jerusalem is where he's going to be put to death. And so he goes to Galilee, and Galilee, again, another uh, interesting thing about Galilee, it was the first place to go into exile when the Assyrians came and took over uh, that part of Israel. And so they went into exile before the southern kingdom, and they're going to be the first place to experience the restoration of the Messiah. But it's not a place you'd expect Jesus to go. You'd expect for him to go to the people who had power the people who were educated, the people who had it all together, but he doesn't do that. He comes to this backwater town 
and preaches to people who would probably look down on by society. And so Jesus goes to places we wouldn't expect, and, and you think about it, and you know, Jesus came to the earth, he was born as a baby, born in a manger, in a feeding trough, left the glories of heaven, but even as he lived among us, he went to places you wouldn't expect, went to people who were looked down upon. And I think that's an encouragement for us because oftentimes we meet Jesus in unexpected places. We meet Jesus in areas of brokenness. We find Jesus in places of loss. We find Jesus when we're in need, when we're in want. We find Jesus when we're broken and we don't know how to put the pieces back together. And that's the kind of Savior that we serve, a Savior who goes to unexpected places, to go to unexpected people. And so we see that's where Jesus went to. But second, let's look at who he goes to. He comes to these fishermen and he says, follow me. This was unusual for a couple of reasons. The first reason was because usually when a disciple wanted to follow after a rabbi, the disciple would come and ask the rabbi, can I follow you, essentially? Can I go in your stead? Can I learn from you? It was kind of a thing of humility where the, the, the disciple would ask the, the rabbi if they could be a part of their, you know, tradition. But that doesn't happen with Jesus. Jesus goes and he invites them. He says, you, follow me. And, and it's almost like it's, it's a command, essentially. It's not even an invitation. It's a command. It says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So that's significant that Jesus chooses them. They don't choose Jesus. And you have to imagine what was going through their minds. They, they, they had to be ecstatic that Jesus, this great rabbi, they probably didn't, they didn't understand who he was at this point, but that Jesus would choose them would have been incredible. Second thing is they're fishermen. They're unlearned. It's not like they were the least of society, but they weren't scribes. They weren't religious leaders. They didn't know very much about the law. They were just the average, peop average people who went out and, and fished every day. And I think maybe that was part of the reason that Jesus chose them. He chose them because they weren't religious leaders. They didn't know the law like the religious leaders knew the law. And I think perhaps part of the reason he chose them was because they had less that they needed to unlearn than the religious leaders did. In short, they recognized their need and they were teachable. Writer Greg Prophet talks about teachability this way. He said, Teach, to be teachable, one must meet two corresponding psychological conditions. The willingness to learn and the willingness to change. The moment you believe you've got this, that, that you know it and you've arrived, you're dead in the water as far as personal growth. So Jesus could have came and chosen the religious leaders of the day, the top scribes, the top Pharisee or Sadducee, they wouldn't have learned anything from him. All they wanted to do was debate him and argue with him. But he chooses fishermen who want to know more about him, who want to learn, who are open to hear from him. Years ago, a researcher by the name of Peter Skillman conducted this experiment, and he wanted to pit um, top university students against kind of the average kindergartner. And he gave them this task. He gave them a few objects. He gave them 20 pieces of spaghetti, one yard of tape, one yard of string, and one 
marshmallow. And the goal was to, to see how high they could build whatever they built, build a tower. And so the only rule was the marshmallow had to be on top at the end. And so then he would watch how they interacted, and they were in teams of four. And these top university students began, they started diagnosing the task, they formulated solutions, started to assign roles, and the kindergartners, they just, just started jumping into it. They just started putting things together and seeing what worked, what didn't work. And, you know, you think about that, you think for sure these university students would come out on top. Daniel Coyle explains the outcome this way. Uh, we presume skilled individuals will combine to produce skilled performance, but this assumption is wrong. In dozens of trials, the kindergartners built structures that averaged 26 inches tall, while the business school students built structures that averaged less than 10 inches. People who were talented, who had the skills, accomplished a lot less than the kindergartners who worked together and knew they just had to figure it out. And I think when it comes to our Christian faith, God is not looking for the most talented and gifted people in the world. He's simply looking for people who will follow him and learn from him and obey him. We don't have to have it all together. We don't have to be the top at, at what we're doing. We just need to be available and teachable to hear what he has to say to us. There was a um, hospital uh, called the Great Ormond Street Hospital in London, and um, their top doctor had that quality of teachability. He had just performed a 12-hour transplant, and after performing that transplant, he watched a Formula One uh, car race. And as he watched that race, he was amazed at how quickly um, the pit crew was able to do what they did. They, you know, it was seven seconds, and they were topping off the tires, topping off the gas, um, doing all the things that had to be done so quickly, sometimes even changing the tires, and, you know, and then the car is off and everything is, goes smoothly and perfectly. And, and as, as he was watching that race, he realized, like, we must be doing something wrong. Because as he would move patients, he would have uh, dozens of doctors or nurses together, and it would sometimes take them 30 minutes to untangle and unplug all the wires and tubes and transfer a patient from surgery to the ICU. So he thought to himself, we got to be doing something wrong. And so he did something that probably ruffled a little bit of feathers. Uh, he invited the, the Ferrari and McLaren racing teams to come to the hospital and give them some pointers on how to basically be better doctors and, and be better nurses. Imagine some of the other doctors and nurses thought to themselves, they, what do they know about health? What do they know about healing people? What do they know about surgery? And yet they came, and uh, most people listened to them, and, and as a result, the, the hospital got stronger. The hospital staff initiated major changes, including better training, new procedures, a step-by-step -step checklist covering each stage of handover, diagram, so that everyone would know their exact physical uh, position as well as their precise task. And as a result, almost, it almost halved handover errors. And so their problems were solved by race car drivers, race car teams. And the reason they were able to improve was because they were teachable. Because they realized we don't have all the answers. We know about medicine, but we don't know how to do things fast and efficiently. And if we're going to be followers of Christ that make a difference, we need to be followers of Christ that are teachable, that are open to his correction, 
that we realize we don't have it all together, that we're all broken, we're all in need of his grace, we all need his power and his Holy Spirit. Find something else interesting in this passage. Another thing that's interesting about the fact that he went to fishermen. Now, back in Israel's history, when, when God was choosing a king, God looked for a king to shepherd his people. And what did he do? He went out and found a shepherd, David. Now Jesus is looking for people who would bring in the lost, who'd gather the lost. And he went to people who gathered that which was lost, in a sense. Fishermen. What's interesting about that is I think that sometimes God prepares us for spiritual things but by preparing us through the things, physical things that we do. Uh, Frederick Buchner, a U.S. writer and preacher, once said this, the place God calls you is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meets. I think perhaps Jesus is saying to these first disciples, I know that you're fishermen. I know that's what brings you joy. I know that's what you're good at. And I'm going to use what you're good at to bring me glory. I'm going to use what you're good at to bring people into the kingdom of God. And so sometimes we maybe question, can God use me? The answer is yes. God can use you right where you're at. God can use your gifts. God can use your skills. God can use your opportunities right where you're at and use them for the kingdom of God. He used his shepherd to become a king, and he used fishermen to become the church. And so God can use us anywhere we're at. And so who did Jesus come to? He came to fishermen from, Jude from Galilee, people who didn't have it all together, people who were not part of the cultural elite. And then finally, we see what did Jesus call his disciples to do? He calls them to let go. Jesus is asking for a lot, it seems. He's asking for them to leave their families, leave their livelihood. And uh, in this passage, it's kind of jarring where it, it seems as if uh, Jesus just comes up to them and it's the first time he met them and calls them to follow him. It's probably not the case if you look at the book of John. Um, these disciples were familiar with Jesus' ministry, though they weren't following him in the same sense. But they, Jesus comes up to them, asks them, come, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And so that meant leaving their families. It also meant leaving their livelihood behind. Now we think about fishermen and, you know, sometimes people think of fishermen in the ancient world as being kind of, um, kind of the lowest uh, part of society, but that wasn't the case. Uh, in Galilee, fishing was a big business. And in the ancient world, in the Middle East, people ate a lot of fish. And so the disciples, they weren't, you know, rich by any means, but they weren't poor either. You know, their family had a good business. They knew what they were doing. Uh, they were good fishermen. And so it was a cost that was involved in leaving that behind. But that's what Jesus calls them to do. In Luke 14, 26, Jesus says this, If anyone comes to me, it does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? 
Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it began to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes after him with 20,000? Now we think about that, and of course Jesus is not saying that we should hate our mother and father or our relatives like we think about hate. Um, He's saying that our love for Christ should be much greater than any other uh, human relationship that we have. And sometimes we have trouble um, kind of conceptualizing what that looks like because we live in a country where we can worship in in freedom. But for some people in, in other countries, when they come to Christ, it could be a death sentence. It could mean that their mother or father kicked them out of the house. Um, some of you have been reading the book by David Platt, Something Needs to Change, or going through that study. Um, and I remember one person in there, he became a Christian, and his family just kind of disowned him. And so that's what Jesus is talking about when he says you hate your father and mother or your family, because sometimes it will mean if you become a Christian, you're going to experience rejection. And so there's a there's a cost involved. Do you love Christ more or do you love those family relationships more? Sometimes coming to Christ could, could be an immediate death sentence. Um, there's a missions agency called Asian Access and uh, they have you know uh, different missionaries in different locations in Asia and um, they came up with a list of questions that church planners ask believe, new believers who are considering baptism. And in this one particular country, they didn't want to give the name of the country because of security reasons, but it's a Hindu uh, country, and uh, there's a lot of persecution there. And they'll often ask uh, potential believers who want to be baptized questions like this, are you willing to leave home and lose the blessing of your father? Are you willing to lose your job? Are you willing to go uh, to the village and those who persecute you? Forgive them and share the love of Christ with them. Are you willing to give an offering to the Lord? Are you willing to be beaten rather than deny your faith? Are you willing to go to prison? Are you willing to die for Jesus? There's a cost involved in coming to Christ. And we think about that, and in our culture, we want to make it easy, right? We want to make it so easy as if, You know, Jesus can come and kind of be an add-on to our life, that we can continue the life that we're living, and Jesus can come come and be an add-on and kind of improve our life. But there's always a cost involved in following him. Jesus always calls us to come take our cross and die. Now, for us, living in the United States, most likely it won't mean physically dying like it does in, in some other countries. But it means dying to ourself. It means dying to our own priorities, dying to our own opinions and living for him, allowing God's spirit to change us. So there's always a cost involved. There's always a sense of leaving things behind. And some of us maybe face that persecution with members of our family who are not believers, who maybe reject us or look down upon us because we're believers. But there's always a cost involved. Diedrich Bonhoeffer writes this, chief, chief grace is the grace we bestow upon ourselves. Chief grace is preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Chief grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. 
Grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Costly grace is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It's the call of Christ at which the disciples leave his nets and follow him. So we think about the cost of following after Christ. And you think about that cost, and, you know, I've always thought about the cost, and it's kind of scary, right? But you look at the disciples in this passage, and Jesus calls them to follow him, and what do they do? They're just like, yeah. They leave their family, they leave their livelihood, and they go with joy and follow after him. It's, it's not like this arduous cost. It's a joy to follow after him. And, and we see uh, that they have this joy because of this incredible privilege that they have to follow after Christ, to experience his blessing, to experience a relationship with him. And at the end of the chapter, we see Jesus is expanding his ministry. He's healing the sick, cleansing the leper, gaining a following, and Jesus' disciples are going to get a front row seat to be able to see the Messiah. So just because there's a cost involved doesn't mean there's no joy involved. So uh, recently, my car transmission went bad. And uh, as you know, transmissions are a lot of money. And I didn't really have a choice. I mean, I either had to get a new car or get it fixed. It was cheaper to fix it than to get a new car. But it was a lot of money, didn't really have a choice. And it was especially hard because it was not something I wanted to spend money on. I mean, if, if you think about things you know, that were top of my list to spend money on, it was not a transmission. Because I had no choice, and I'm never going to see it. I'm never going to look at the work that they did and, and open it up and say, wow, this is awesome. I love this new transmission. It's just something like, oh, I got to put this money out. I got to do it. At least it rides now, you know, drives now. So sometimes people think of that as being kind of like the cost involved in, in coming to Christ. It's like something we have to do, like, yeah, we got to do it because I don't want to go to hell. I think I, I got to follow after Christ, but I'm not going to see the fruit of it. I'm not going to see the results of it, but I better do it, even though it's costly. That's not what it looks like to follow after Christ. What does it look like in the scripture? Matthew 13, 40, 40, 45 says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and, and bought it. Think about something maybe you've saved up for for a long time. Something that you wanted so badly, more than anything else. And then when you get enough money, you go to the store and, and you buy it. Now, is there joy involved in that? Of course there is. Because you're getting the thing that you wanted. I think about, you know, maybe a guy who's saving up for a wedding ring. You know, and it's a lot of money to, to, to buy an engagement or a wedding ring. And maybe he saves up a lot of saves up that money to get an engagement ring, and then he goes to the jewelry store and he gladly pays that money because he's in love with a woman. The same thing is true in our relationship with Christ. Yes, there's a cost involved, but we don't see it as oh, I just 
Just got to go and follow after Christ. Just got to do my duty. I'm not going to see the results of it, but I, that's what I got to do. No. Jesus Christ is like the treasure hidden in the field that we're willing to sell everything for. He's worthy of all glory and honor. He is so valuable, there's no cost that's too much. There's a missionary to Ecuador, you've probably heard of him, called Jim Elliott. Him and four of his companions were killed in 1956 as they were trying to uh, preach the gospel to, to ten uh, Hirani warriors. And uh, they left behind them families, uh, five widows. And on the one-year anniversary of their death, uh, Elizabeth Elliot, wife of Jim, uh, speaking on behalf of herself and the other, four, uh, the, the other four widows, said this, We prove beyond any doubt that he means what he says. His grace is sufficient. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We pray that if any, anywhere, are fearing that the cost of discipleship is too great, that they may, given, may be given to glimpse that treasure in heaven is promised to all for, who forsake. It's an incredible viewpoint for people who have lost so much. But there's no cost that's too great when we're following after Christ. He'll sustain us. He'll give us the grace that we need. So where does Jesus go? He goes to a place that we wouldn't expect. He goes to unlearned fishermen, people we wouldn't expect. He calls them to let go of the things that they're holding on to, leave everything behind to follow him. And there's a question I think that this passage requires us to ask. And that question is this, what is call, Christ calling us to unlearn and what is Christ calling us to let go of? What is Christ calling us to unlearn and what is Christ calling us to let go of? There, there's always this temptation to think that we have the Christian life all figured out. Maybe, especially if we've been walking with Christ for a while, there's this temptation to get to a point where we stop listening to God's word and we start listening to our opinions or our beliefs about God's word. We start relying on our past experience rather than our present relationship with Christ. The great reformers of old used to talk about the idea of the Word of God always reforming us, always changing us. And so as we approach God's Word, we need to always be open to hearing from Him. Always be teachable. Always recognize that maybe we have some things wrong. We need to approach the Word of God willing to unlearn some things. Because maybe there's some things in our past or patterns that we've gotten into that are sinful patterns, and maybe Christ needs to help us undo those things. Maybe there's beliefs that have entered into our soul that are worldly beliefs rather than things that are in line with Christ. There's a great preaching professor named Eugene Lowry and he used to give this advice to young preachers. He said, I try to teach my students how to trick themselves into hearing. You have to be out of control. When you're in the driver's seat, it doesn't work. It doesn't matter where I open this thing up. Speaking of the Bible, I already have my theology. I just superimpose it. I don't tell the folks. Uh, I do. I just do it so automatically I don't even notice. So you have to trick yourself to get out of control. One of the things I tell my students is sometimes to take a text that you're hoping to use in a sermon 
Underline all the important parts. And then look at what you did not underline. That's where God may speak. The Spirit may get real active at the point of confusion or at what we don't notice. If, or if it's a narrative with several characters, find out with whom you're identifying. Then put yourself in somebody else's shoes and see if the Lord might speak. Don't open a text or start first working on your notes. What's the theme? What are the points I can make? <coughs> no, don't start looking for points. Start looking for questions. Look for trouble. In the confusion of trouble is where the Lord may speak a new word. If we don't hear that word, how will anybody else hear it through us? We need to be always listening anew to God. We need to always be listening anew to God, willing to unlearn the things in our life that are not of Christ. So that's the first question. The second is, what do we need to let go of? What do we need to let go of? Jesus is worth it all. He's worthy of all honor, glory, and power. He's the treasure hidden in the field, the pearl of great price. What is Christ calling us to let go of today? Since 2006, a group of people have been doing, um, celebrating kind of a holiday that they've created called Good Riddance Day. Participants write down unpleasant, painful, or embarrassing memories from the past year, throw them into an industrial-sized shredder. Or they can take, or if you prefer, you can take a sledgehammer and smash your Good Riddance item like a cell phone or whatever it may be. It's based off a Latin American tradition in which New, Year, New Year's revelers stuffed dolls with objects representing bad memories before setting them on fire. One of the organizers of this day said this, it's, it really is this need we have, even when the world is crazy, to say, you know what, I'm going to let go of the things that have been dragging me down and going to look forward with a sense of hope and the possibility of change, either for myself personally or for the world. So this is a chance to detox in a big way. So what is Christ calling us to let go of? Some of us, maybe Christ is calling us to let go of fear. Maybe there's something in our lives that's just weighing down on us. A mountain that just seems too high. Something that seems insurmountable. Maybe Christ is calling us to leave that at the foot of the cross today. Maybe Christ is calling us to leave anxiety with him today. Maybe there's things in our heart that are just weighing on our minds, keep us up at night. And maybe Christ is calling us to give up those things, to recognize that he's in control. Maybe some of us are dealing with guilt, things that we've done in the past, or maybe things that we've repented of. We're dealing with that guilt, and maybe Christ is calling us to leave those things at the foot of the cross and to walk forward in freedom and truth. Maybe some of us are dealing with sins or addiction that we're not willing to let go of. We know the destruction they're causing in our lives, but we're holding on to them. And maybe today Christ is calling us to let go of these things. Leave them at the foot of the cross. What is Christ calling us to unlearn and let go of today? Luke chapter 9, Jesus is talking to a few of the disciples where he's about to be transfigured before, before them. And as he's being transfigured, the text says this. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. May we listen to the word of Christ. 
May we listen to his voice, unlearning the things in our life we need to unlearn and letting go of the things that are weighing down our souls. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love for us. Even though we're inadequate, even though each and every one of us are desperately insecure and desperately in need of you, we thank you that you love us anyways. We thank you that you meet us in unexpected, broken places, people in places that the world would not expect the Messiah to reside. We thank you that you meet us where we're at, that no matter where we're at or what we're good at, what our personality is, what resources we have or don't have, you meet us right where we're at and choose to use us for your glory. Lord, we thank you that you are enough for us, that you are the great treasure hidden in the field, that's worth every, that you're worth everything. Lord, help us to see you and the beauty of who you are. Help us to let go of the things we need to let go of, to unlearn the things that we need to unlearn so that we would find our joy and our rest in you. In Christ's name I pray, amen.